Hi, everyone. Great, uh, great to see you. And um, has everyone been having a good week? Yeah? And the exciting. I, um, I started using Twitch uh, this week. Does anyone know what that is? I don't know what it is either. I, someone, someone told me about Twitch. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. Thank you. Um, yeah, someone told me about Twitch. Hey, just raise their hand if you know what Twitch is. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, we're one, I'm one of that group. Yeah, the, the younger, younger demographic. Um, yeah, I don't really, anyway, that's just completely irrelevant. Uh, we're doing a series on uh, the spiritual battle, coming to the end of the spiritual battle. Uh, because uh, Jesus promises us life to the full, but he also promises us that life will be a bit of a battle. And so we've been looking at how we, we face that battle, how we, we win that battle. And this is the last session. This is the last talk on the spiritual battle. The spiritual battle will continue after this. But this is the last talk on the spiritual battle. And we're going to look at a passage in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, this is a passage I've been thinking about actually for a number of months. It's Matthew chapter 16. And uh, verse 13. I've got, um, uh, Tara, I've got, there are a couple of flip chart marks, I think, in my, in my bag. I forget, I've, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. That's great, just in case. <laughs> well, that was close. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Matthew chapter 16, <laughs> verse 13. Uh, she just, did you hear what she said? She said, of course there are. Um, <laughs> uh, Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus wants to give you and me a number of different things. Uh, first of all, he wants to bless us. The first words that Jesus says to uh, Simon Peter is he says, blessed are you. Uh, Jesus wants to 
affirm it. Blessing is to speak well. The first interaction of Jesus towards us is one of, of blessing. He wants to say good things, to affirm you. The first words of God over creation was, it is good. The first words of God over human beings is that we are very good. The Father's first words over Jesus in the Gospels are, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. The first thing that Jesus wants to do in the way that he interacts with you and me is to affirm and say, you are loved, I'm pleased with you, you are my son, you're my daughter. The second thing he does is he then names us. He says, you are Peter. He gives us a new identity. All through our lives, we're searching for who we really are and trying to find our identity in all kinds of things, external things, internal things. But Jesus is the one who sees us perfectly for who we are. And he gives us a name that we do not even know ourselves. He names us, defines us. And then he calls us, he gives Peter a purpose. He says, actually, you're gonna be the foundation of the church. And Jesus has a purpose for each one of us, something that only you can do. He knows you and he calls you. He gives you a purpose. And then fourthly, he then equips you. He says to Peter, you're gonna be the foundation of my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, you do not have what it takes yet to do what I'm calling you to do, but I will give you everything you need to do what I'm calling you to do. So this is how Jesus loves us. He says, he blesses us, he defines us, he calls us, and he equips us. He answers our search for, for love, for identity, for meaning, and our longing to be empowered. And I'd love to just stop there. That would be great. However, Jesus goes on to say to Peter, well, he calls him Satan and tells him he has to die. So this is where things get a bit more complicated and uncomfortable. Because I would love to just stay in that sort of realm. Blesses us, calls us, names us, equips us, empowers us, and avoid the bit where he confronts us and challenges us. But actually, this is essential for the fullness of the Christian life that we understand this second way that Jesus interacts with Paul Peter. One moment, Jesus is saying, you are Peter, like the rock, a quite a cool name, and says, I'm gonna give you all these things. The next moment he says, you are Satan, and you have to die. But why? Because of what Jesus wants to give him and to all of us. So this is how I think the Christian life looks. This is my, um, this is my diagram of the Christian life. Um, you uh, become a Christian and then uh, you grow in faith, in love, you're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, you're listening to Jesus' voice, trying to um, serve him, and then everything goes wrong. And things fall apart and things become really uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, it's a nightmare. And then you experience the transforming power and tra uh, of of Jesus who rescues us and brings us out. So that, this is what the Christian life looks like. So this is exactly how it looked for Jesus. So Jesus was born, says in Luke's gospel, he grew in, um, uh, so he grew in favor with God and with human beings. Uh, reaches this high point where he's baptized in the River Jordan, he hears the voice of God, you are my son whom I love with you and well pleased. And then he goes into the, the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, he's hungry. But then he comes out of that into the, um, in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, Jesus' life and ministry. He's healing people, teaching, um, all kind of walking on water, feeding 5,000. It reaches this high point where he raises one of his best friends back to life. He enters Jerusalem with everyone singing Hosanna. And then suddenly he's betrayed, abandoned, crucified, rejected, dies in agony. But then he's resurrected to new life. Now this is, and then what Jesus says, this is true for Jesus. He says, this is what has to be. I see the notice the repetition of the word must. I must be rejected. I must suffer many things. I must die. This is unavoidable. And then he says, this is actually unavoidable for the Christian life. If anyone wants to be my disciple, actually you have to give up your life and be willing to follow the same pattern. And this is actually the pattern of the Christian life. So as Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I'll lack nothing. He leads me beside still waters, paths of righteousness, and it's lovely. And then suddenly you're in the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> but then it ends with and um, being in the house of the Lord forever. And actually the Psalms in general uh, follow uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar. So you have Psalms of orientation, which is all about how God cares for us, looks after us, provides for us. Then you have Psalms of disorientation, which is where, the, where people just say, my life's falling apart, everything's a mess, I don't know what's going on, where are you, God? And then you have Psalms of reorientation, which is where you, they articulate how God rescues us and brings us, brings us out. This is how things are supposed to look. Actually, this is true of um, almost everything. So a relationship. So you're, you're growing in friendship. Oh, it's a romantic relationship. You're going out. And then everything's going well. You're getting closer. And then suddenly you have an argument. Or suddenly you realize, actually, there's something I need to talk about which is quite uncomfortable. I need to be vulnerable. And it's, and it's painful. And you say, actually, I'm going to talk about these things. And then what you experience is forgiveness, reconciliation, being loved for who you are. So this is how the, uh, the light, or um, you are sensing a call to, I don't know, um, move to a church in Rio de Janeiro. Um, <laughs> you announce that it's all quite exciting and then everything falls apart and becomes really difficult. And then you hope, you hope there's another phase. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is the Christian life. Now, this is where the, the temptation comes in and the spiritual battle. Because what Peter says Peter says to Jesus, you don't have to do that. You can do, just jump from there to there. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And this is one of the strongest and the most subtle forms of the temptation of the enemy is where he says, you don't have to do this bit. You can jump straight from here to here. You don't have to give anything up. That relationship that you know is not good for you you don't have to give that up. And that habit that you know is actually wrecking your life, that's fine, you, you can carry on with that. That doesn't matter. You, you don't have to do that. And actually, in that um, you're feeling bad about, about something that you've done, um, instead of going through the process of admitting it, saying sorry, confessing it, repentance, just um, try to pretend you haven't done anything wrong and try and jump to this phase. And so this is the temptation of the enemy. He says this bit is unnecessary. And so what he does then is he, is he says, what you want to do instead, uh, God wants us to experience this. 
life in all its fullness. But the enemy says, no, what you want to do is spend all your time trying to avoid this. Focus all your energy into trying to protect yourself, surround yourself with comfort, security, so that you never go through any of this. And so that in spending all your time in focusing on avoiding this, the enemy wants us to avoid ever experiencing this. And says, so don't, don't do it. It's not, it's not worth it. Just trying to avoid that. It's the same temptation with, um, with parenting, that you think, oh, you want your children to experience this, but you want to protect them from this. But in protecting your children from ever going through difficult things or painful things, or times where they're gonna have to struggle, actually you're avoiding them ever experiencing this. So this is the, this is the temptation uh, that the enemy brings. Now the interesting thing about this passage, which makes it so terrifying, is that Peter becomes the voice of Satan. Because this is the voice that's most tempting to listen to, but it's also the most tempting voice to be. And if I may say it, for church leaders in particular, Peter would become one of the leaders of the church, is the temptation of the voice to say to one another, oh, no, 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 it's fine. And I know it exactly, this is the one particularly I feel for myself, which is the, the temptation to be a voice always affirming, comforting, reassuring, and never being willing to challenge or confront. I know, I know, it's so strong that if, you know, one of you who I love so dearly and you say, oh, Johnny, I'm thinking of becoming a bank robber, I'd say, oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, I might try to modify it slightly. Oh, remember, um, yeah, I would try and do it as gently as you can and um, always remember to say thank you. But I, I, rather than, oh, no, this isn't good at all because that is the temptation. Say, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. You don't have to do that. And maybe because we're scared that we might have to do the same. And so this is, uh, this is the battle that we each have to face because Jesus said, if you give up your life, then you will gain it. That's where, and so he said, Peter, you've, he says, you've got in your mind the concerns of human beings and not of God. And again, that's what the enemy wants to do, to think all the time about the things of this world and not of the kingdom. To think actually about this life and not the next life. Because it's the next life when we experience all of these things in our fullness that makes all sacrifices worth it in this life. But if the enemy can say, don't worry about the next life, that's only think about how you can secure yourself and protect yourself in this life then he begins to win. But I know, I know for myself and I know for all of us that the fullness of life comes from giving up our lives. And that can be really painful because it sometimes means giving up the country you love and the church you love and the friends you love, the people you love, the flip charts you love, the world you love. <laughs> but you know deep down that if you obey God when he asks you to give up these things, he will give you so much more. And yet it feels impossible. So often this, this pattern of life feels impossible. You think, I just don't know what to do. And actually for Peter, the comforting thing is for Peter, it was impossible. So when it came to a moment when Jesus was arrested, Peter wasn't able to give up his life then. What he did was he tried to protect himself. 
and he denied Jesus three times. But what Peter did do was he kept on going back to Jesus. When Jesus called him Satan, he still started hang, kept on hanging out with Jesus. When he denied Jesus three times, he still went back to him, still. Because when you're just with him, when you just stay in the place where it's possible, eventually it would become possible for Peter. He would actually lay down his life for Jesus and glorify him at the end of his life, many decades later. But it's because he stayed where at least it was possible. Earlier this week, on Monday, I took a train up to London. And as I came out of the station, I saw someone sitting on the floor asking for some money. And I uh, said hello to him briefly, walked walk past, and then sort of got on my bicycle and started cycling off to where I was heading. And as I got on my bicycle, I felt God say very clearly, go back and tell him Jesus loves him. And I thought, I cannot do that. I know I'm a vicar, I'm supposed to be able to do these things, but I just, uh, <laughs> that I just, no, I'm very, I, um, I don't think I can do that. But what I thought was, if I carry on cycling, it will never happen. But what I could do is just, I'll get off my bicycle and start walking back towards him, because at least then it's a possibility, even though it feels impossible. So I got off my bicycle, and I started walking towards him. And I walked straight past him again. And then I stopped, I turned around, and then I, got, I walked back towards him. I stood in front of him, and I plucked out my courage, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, Hi, how are you doing? And he said, fine. And then I paused and then I said, nothing. He then had to ask me questions because it was getting quite awkward. So he started asking what I was doing, where I'd been from, what, what I did for a living. That created a bit of an opening, so that was helpful. <laughs> anyway, about seven or eight minutes later, eventually I said, can I pray for you? And he said, yes, and so I prayed for him. And in my prayers, I, I prayed that he would know the love of Jesus, which I hoped was close enough <laughs> to what I felt God was saying that I should do. Now, the point of that is that there was something that felt impossible. And all of Jesus' commands feel impossible. I mean, there are all kinds of things he says. That, I mean, there's be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul says later, pray constantly. Be joyful and hope. There are all kinds of, most of the commands of the Christian life are totally impossible. And we can either give up because they seem impossible, or we can say, I'm going to just try and stay in the kind of realm where they might be possible one day. I'll just keep on coming back, keep on being involved, doing my best, trying to stay in that realm. I'll get on a plane, I'll do whatever it is. And hopefully, through that process, I'll be able to give up my life in order that I might experience the fullness of life which were promised. And Peter, in this story, just at this final thing, and then we're going to take communion. Uh, Peter has this moment of revelation. He sees Jesus as the Messiah. And it's this great and vital moment. And the Messiah is the one who fulfilled all the hopes of the people of Israel. And so what Peter saw in Jesus was the one who fulfills all my desires. All the things I've longed for all my life, I can see that you're the one who is able to give me all these things. And he recognizes him as the Messiah. But what he can't get his head around is what it's going to take for Jesus and what it's ultimately going to take for Peter. 
he can't quite get his head around that it's the crucified Messiah, which is why Jesus actually says, don't tell anyone that I'm Messiah. Until after the cross and resurrection, people will just misunderstand me if they know, if you start saying I'm the Messiah. They need to know I'm a crucified Messiah and then tell the world. And that's, I suppose, the question for you and me this morning. Do we just want Jesus the Messiah, the one who fulfills all our desires, who might heal our sickness, provide guidance, provide comfort, provide security? Or do we want the crucified Messiah, the one who ultimately forgives our sins, transforms our lives, but then also calls us to follow him in the same way? Because it's only that way that we experience the fullness of life. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand?